Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Well, if you would, please turn to Psalm 23. Uh, we're doing a summer series through the Psalms, and uh, looking particularly at psalms where we talk about communing with God. And uh, let me take just a moment to uh, set this up and uh, help you think about this psalm, maybe in a new way, because for some of us, uh, Psalm 23 is very well known. We've memorized it as a child. We've heard it at funerals. Uh, It's part of the cultural understanding of Christianity that a lot of folks have. So uh, let me kind of tell you why this is important, I think, for us. Several years ago, I was... uh, I was 21. I was not out of college. I was doing an internship at the Grove Park Inn in, North, in Asheville, North Carolina. And one of the guys I met there one day was a, a, really a, just a solid big guy. Uh, he was an atheist, and he wanted to have a conversation with me being a young Christian about uh, Jesus and the gospel and Christianity. And so uh, I was thinking, hey, this is going to be kind of a cordial, collegial conversation with this guy. We're going to talk ideas. And so we started talking, and about two minutes into the conversation, he started yelling at me. His sister had passed away from cancer, and he just started yelling at me, saying, where was God when this happened? Why did God allow this to happen? And he just started yelling all these questions at me. And and one of the things I realized was uh, he's an atheist by choice, because somebody who doesn't believe there's a God doesn't isn't mad at a God who would allow those kinds of things to take place. But it also kind of let me know um, that for a lot of people, they have this idea that if there is a God, uh, he's in the business of bringing hardship into our lives. It's kind of his role. Like our lives are going well, and then God shows up. And you better be careful what you pray for, because you might just get it. We hear things like that all the time. And, and it reveals kind of the heart motivations and attitudes that we have towards God. And then, you know, another thing, this is a quote from a guy named Michael Ramsden I came across just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's a quote about our culture, and he said, the reason people are unhappy in the world today is not because they have nothing to be grateful for, but because they have no one to be grateful to. And I thought that was a fascinating conversation because we were made, like we said a couple of weeks ago, for uh, the world is set for a table for two for me to enjoy the things that God has put on the table and for me to enjoy them with him. And so I think this is why Psalm 23 is really an important one. A psalm for us is because it's not just one of the most beloved psalms in the Bible. It's not probably one of the most beloved poems in the history of the world. Uh, but it is important for understanding the Christian life. So Psalm 23 is attributed to the Old Testament King David, who when he was very young was taken from the flocks where he was taking care of the, the family sheep He was anointed to be king of Israel and went on to live a very different life. But um, he remained in his mind in some ways the shepherd. And this psalm was really a a psalm about his inner life and the way that he thought about his relationship with God. Now, we read this psalm quite a bit at uh, funerals, uh, but David did not have this psalm read probably at his funeral. Uh, This was a psalm that he didn't write to be read just that day. But it was about life today and every day and about God with us every day. And David wrote this as not just a a statement about 
theology, but kind of as a manifesto of his own faith, that every single day, this God leads me. So we're going to, uh, you know, what would it be like for this psalm, uh, you know, which is a metaphor and it's beautiful, but what happens if you took it as truth? That this is real and this is the way my relationship with God really is. And we made this a confession for us this morning. So let me invite you to stand if you're willing and able as uh, I read for us Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we open it up and look at what is, for some of us, maybe an over-familiar psalm. So let's ask him to give us new insight. You are the good shepherd. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, to pastor us this morning with this passage that you would show us things we haven't seen, that you would show us things we've taken for granted, that you would enable us and to help us to bring this psalm into our lives in a powerful way, not just to be read and understood on the day of our funeral where we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but to be read every day saying that you are our shepherd and you lead and guide us. Would you bless us and would you be with us as we open up your word, we ask in your holy name. Amen. Have a seat. Psalm 23 is powerful because of the very personal nature of it. He's, he's telling us that God is personally, powerfully present with us, with you, and that we are not all alone in an all-alone world where it feels like the sky is shut up and God doesn't see what's going on. I'm going to just think about the primary image here. Uh, what a shepherd is and what a shepherd does. The shepherd stays with the flock. The shepherd takes care of the flock. And, uh, you know, as, we, as, I've, as I've heard sermons preached on Psalm 23, I think a lot of people uh, want to focus on the stupidity of the sheep. And uh, let's make no bones about it, sheep are pretty stupid. Uh, but I think that's not really what he's getting at in this psalm. I think he's getting more at the sheep's vulnerability and their neediness. And that the shepherd intentionally, not getting paid by the sheep, but intentionally comes alongside and takes care upon him, of them. He takes that task upon himself. And uh, so as we look at this, what it means for the Lord to be our shepherd, we're going to talk about three things primarily. Something about God's presence, something about God's provision, and then a little something about our response to this. So that's where we're going this morning. Something about God's presence, and we see it very clearly in Psalm 23, verse 4. I will fear no evil or harm, for you are with me. And here's the truth. God is personally present with you. Or as he says to God, you are with me. 
So two things here we're going to talk about just under this is, uh, one is that Yahweh is my shepherd. It's very personal, right? He doesn't just say that Yahweh is a shepherd, as if he's kind of like making an illustration of what God is, must be like. And he's not saying that the Lord is my, uh, is our shepherd, and saying collectively, but it's very personal. The Lord is my shepherd, me as an individual person. So the me here implies a very unique relationship. You know, we might talk about my coach, my brother, my wife, my parents, my sons. You know, I have a different relationship with them than I have to other people. There, there's a unique personal attachment with that. And that's what he's saying we have here. So Rebecca is my wife. She is unique to me in all the world than any other person. And he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a unique relationship. We're going to talk about that more in just a little bit. But there's another uh, phrase that's used here that I think is very important in understanding the personal presence of God. And it's in 23 verse 4, where he says, you are with me. You are with me. And that changes everything that we think about living life here. And the reason is, is because a lot of times in my circles and some of our theological circles, we use this word called omnipresence. And what that word means is that God is not bound by spatial limitations the way that you and I are. He is everywhere all the time. He is equally present in those places. He's equally aware in those places. You only see from your perspective, but, Jesus, but God sees from every perspective. So he's omnipresent. And so I'd say, well, yeah, God is with me, but that's not what he means here in this passage when he talks about being with. He's making a very relational statement about the Lord's presence with us. So last uh, 4th, 4th of July is this week, and uh, last year we came to this area because they were having a fireworks show here. Did, you know, did any of you come to the fireworks show here at the Wildwood Community Center? No? We did. Oh, you did. Okay. You were there. We sat right across the street, and we watched these things. And so in that sense, we were with the throngs of people who were here to watch all the fireworks. So we were with them, but functionally, I was only with my family, my wife, and some friends that we had with us watching it. So in that sense, I was with them in a different way than I was with everyone else. And in some sense, that's what he means here in this passage is when he says, you are with me, he's not saying, well, you're omnipresent, we know that. He's saying, no, no, you are with me and very aware of what is going on. You are with me personally, specifically, individually, because you love me. And he's acknowledging this here. And that's actually the hope of the whole Bible. The hope of the whole Bible is that God would be with us, that we would be with God. And so what, one of the culminating verses of the, the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. It's one of the culminating verses of time. So you read in, in Revelation chapter 21, and it talks about the Lord taking away the old earth and the old heavens, and they're gone. He's created a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And it says there, and he will, we will be with him. So, verse 20, uh, Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the hope that we have. Because it goes back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had been walking with God in the cool of the day, sinned into the world, and then they left the garden where they would meet with God and went into the world. So our hope is that restoration 
with God, the reversal of the fall, the reversal of sin, the reversal of that expulsion, and that we would be with him. And what he's telling us here is we have that to some degree already. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 28, where he says, um, he says, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So everywhere, everywhere you've ever been, everywhere you will ever go, he says, the Lord is with us as our shepherd. So he's personally present. But we also see in this passage that he personally provides. Uh, 23 verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And uh, that sounds like it's a command at first, I better stop wanting stuff. Uh, But I think what he means is we don't lack anything. That's the old kind of old English version of that. It's like, I I don't want for anything. I have all that I need basically. I'll never lack. And then in verse 20, uh, 23, 5, he says, my cup overflows. So two things here about God's provision is one thing he tells us is this. Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. Now that's pretty significant because I don't know if you have this happen to you, but when you call and uh, you're getting a haircut, and your usual haircut person's not available. So it's like, I want Ricky to do my hair. I don't want Juanita to do my hair. I want Ricky to do my hair because Ricky does a better job of this, right? Ricky has a name. He's the person I want. It's not really Ricky. It's not so. But, um, so it's the same here. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's not saying abstract God is my abstract shepherd. He's saying the Lord God of the Old Testament, that God is shepherding me. He's with me and he's shepherding me. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 talks about who God is. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So he's saying that God who made a covenant, he's my shepherd. The God who has revealed and committed himself to his people, he is my shepherd. The God who guided the Israelites with a cloud by day and a fire by night, that God is my shepherd. The one who um, made eternal promises, he's my shepherd. The one who created the world, he's my shepherd. The one who knows the end from the beginning is my shepherd. The one who promised the seed of the woman would, would crush the serpent, is my shepherd. The one who took on human flesh and took on my sin and went to a cross for me, that one is my shepherd. And he does it better, more lovingly, and more conscientiously than anyone else. He's the perfect shepherd. But then, he's also telling us something specific here is, Yahweh is my shepherd. Yes, he's my father, but here he's talking specifically about God as our shepherd, Yahweh goes with me into every part of life. He's personally present, but in some ways, somebody can be personally present with me, um, uh, can have a a relationship with me, but not be personally present with me. So I have a relationship, they're not here. My wife is on the road right now. Uh, I have a unique and special relationship with her, but she's not here with me. He's saying, the Lord is with us as a shepherd. And he's not a spectator. He's not merely aware. But as you go through the passage, he tells us all these things that the Lord does. He makes me lie down in green pastures in verse 2. 
He leads me beside still waters in verse 2. Verse 3, he restores my soul. Verse 3, he leads me along paths of righteousness. Verse 5, he prepares a table for me. Verse 5, my cup overflows. And what he's telling us is everything that you've ever experienced as good was not only planned by God, but God is ushering you into it in a way for your, for your enjoyment and your blessing. So let me see if I can tell you a story to help you kind of figure this out. I had a student years ago uh, named Parker, and uh, Parker was a delightful guy. He met the girl of his dreams when he was in college, and he decided that they were going to get engaged. And so it was, uh, uh, I don't know how they ended up here. I don't know if Clemson was in a bowl game or what was going on, but they were at Port Orleans Riverside, and he knew I liked, that's where we would stay as a family. So they were at Port Orleans Riverside, and he decided that's where we're going to get engaged. She's down here for the bowl game, probably. We're, my family's down here for the bowl game, and we're going to go walk around the, the water, kind of like the circle at, the, at Port Orleans Riverside, but not just walk around it, because he had enlisted some friends in this. So one of his friends, he got to be dressed up like a medieval minstrel, with like the floppy hat and the, like the lederhosen or whatever, and then, you know, the, the pantaloons or whatever they would have on down to their knees, I don't know, knickers. And uh, so this guy was waiting behind one of the trees. And then a little bit further on was a medieval maiden that uh, was going to come out, and she was going to come through flower petals everywhere and follow along. So he rented a Surrey bike. You know, it's one of those bikes where you kind of like ride, ride tandem. It's like a little car you're pedaling around on. So they're going along. And he stops at this one place where he has the accoutrements set out, like a little picnic and stuff. So they stop their little Surrey bike, and they get out. And she's kind of flipping out. She doesn't know what's going on at first. And so they get down. They have a little picnic. He pulls out the ring. He gives her, asks her to marry him. She says yes. And then the minstrel pops out from behind a tree and starts saying, it must be love, it must be love. And so she's kind of like so embarrassed, just like, Parker, why are you doing this? But she's kind of eating it up at the same time. So they get back on their Surrey bike and they start going and he's going behind them the whole time saying, it's love and we're here today in celebration of love. And, and then the medieval maiden comes out and she starts throwing flowers you know, around in, in, in front of things. Now, that did not happen by accident. That took some planning and some coordinating, but the whole time they're going through, she's surprised at what they're, in, what they're encountering, but Parker's not. He had it planned out. He had it mapped out. And as we come into this passage, this is what he's saying the Lord has done for us. He has it planned out. He has it mapped out. There's nothing, there's no situation you can go into, good or bad, that the Lord does not have mapped out. There's nothing you can face in life that's good that comes into your possession that God was not orchestrating that for that to come into your possession. And this is what he's telling us here in this uh, psalm, is the Lord is involved as a shepherd. He leads us. When you think about what these things are, like uh, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. You know what that is to a sheep? You're lying down in a green pasture. That's like breakfast in bed, right? So they're leaning over knees, like this is really good. The image of besides still waters, it's, it's not just still waters, it's the waters of resting place. So, you know, commentators will look at this and say it's not just a, like a pond or a little creek go, that's going very softly. It's saying you found kind of a home. I'm at rest here. I'm at peace. Or even something like this where he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The Lord knows there are going to be enemies that are there, but he identifies with you and says, 
I'm preparing a table so your enemies will see that I am connected to you. Great picture of this in the Old Testament during the Passover is God's people have painted the doorpost of their, uh, their homes with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So they're inside eating these meals of celebration while God is pouring out wrath on the Egyptians around them. So the Israelites are safe. They're enjoying a celebration meal. But God is saying, these are my people. I'm protecting them as wrath falls on Egypt. It's a great picture of that. So two quotes. The guy's talking about this for us. One is a guy named A.W. Tozer. I'm going to put that one up first. Tozer's talking about the Lord uh, being involved in every part of our lives and us not knowing it. He said, I rarely know where I am going in my life's journey, but I look back and see that God has been leading me every step and I did not even know it. And I don't know why these guys were both A.W., but they're A.W. Uh, A.W. Pink said this, cultivate the holy habit of seeing the hand of God in everything that happens to you. So I want you to notice this. This this whole psalm is about what God has done for us. It's not about what we do for him. It's about what he does for us. It doesn't say anything about what we're supposed to do. Instead, he, he tells us all that God has done for us, and we get a great picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is not about what we do for God, but about what God has done and is doing for us. We're not saved by what we do, but by what God has done completely and wholly and fully by what God has done. We're, we do not contribute to salvation at all. It's not based on us. He does it because of his namesake. That was fascinating for me. I never noticed that until this week when I was preparing this. And in Psalm 23, verse 3, where he says that God guides us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Not for our namesake, not because we've done anything, but because of his namesake, which is saying... He has a motivation that's found in him for why he would take care of us. That's his grace, and that is his love. He guides us, he loves us, even though we don't deserve it. So Psalm 23 is not about things we're supposed to do for God. It's about what he's done for us. And Psalm 23 is not the only place in the Bible where it talks about our relationship to God being like that of a sheep to shepherd. Something like 200 times in the Bible, God calls his people sheep. Uh, They're vulnerable, they need help, and they even fail, and they need a savior. So in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, we read this. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the suffering servant. The sheep have gone astray, and they're held responsible. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Talking about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection on our behalf. And in Luke 15, 4, in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus, the shepherd, leaves the 99 to pursue the one. Why? Because that one sheep is not going to make it back on its own. The shepherd has to go and find that sheep. And we see that actually here in Psalm 23, in verse 6, where he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now the word mercy here in, in this passage is different than the way we think about mercy. Because when we think about mercy, we think about a spontaneous act of pity. 
you know, somebody needs something as a spontaneous. That's not the word in the original language. The word in the original language is a kind of a rich uh, Hebrew word that I'm going to butcher, but I'm going to try to say it like, you know, I was taught in seminary, chesed. Do you, know, you want to say that with me? It's just fun to say chesed, chesed. Okay, so chesed. Um, and what that is, it's referring to God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness. He has bound himself to us by his promises, and we're not pursuing God, but in his commitment, he's pursuing us even when we go astray. In fact, one of my seminary professors said, and when it says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, he said, that's actually a weak form of that verb. It's not simply following us. It's chasing us. It's pursuing us. It's tracking us down. He said it's like you have an old bloodhound and you've got a, like a shirt and you say, go find that person and all of a sudden the dog starts baying and running after its quarry, after its pe- prey. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying that the f- covenant faithfulness of God, his goodness will track me down all the days of my life and say, there you are. I've come to bring blessing to you. So what this means is that you can say, if you're in Christ, Wherever I go, you are my shepherd. There's no place I can go, no circumstance I can enter, no trial I can face, no pleasure I can enjoy, no task to undertake in which you, O Lord, are absent. You are in it, and in fact, you are guiding me through all of it. Now, if you're in Christ, you can say that and say, absolutely, he's my shepherd. Not based on anything about me, but based on something about him, his grace and his mercy. But, if you're not in Christ, understand what he's saying is you, this can become true of you. So how does this become true of a person? Well, it, Jesus was talking to the, the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem, and uh, he, he said this to them. This is curious. He said, uh, you are not my sheep, so you do not listen to my voice. You do not listen to my voice because you are not my sheep. And what Jesus has done is he's made a connection. He's saying, how does a person become one of God's little lambs? It's by believing him, trusting him, and following and saying, I want to be with you. I believe you're all of these things that you say here, and I trust you that you're the good shepherd who lays down your life for the sheep, and you're the good shepherd who then follows and stays with me for the rest of my life, and I want that. So that's how a person becomes one of Jesus' little lambs. And it, once that happens, the continual presence of God is with us, the continual guidance of God, the continual provision of God, the continual blessing of God, and the continual grace of God is ours. Okay. So God's personal pre- presence and God's provision. What do we do with this? Because he's not told us anything that we're supposed to do, but he does point to it in the passage. Um, what's supposed to be our response? Well, how he tells us, or at least he hints at it. I want you to notice there's a shift in chapter 20 and 23.2 to 23.4. Up until 23.4, he's been talking about God in the third person. He's saying, he leads me, he guides me, he does this. But then in the next part, he shifts to prayer. And he starts talking directly to God. And he says that your rod and your staff comfort me. You are always with me. 
So what's going on? Is he's meditating and thinking about the truth of God in his life, both the past, he's always with me, he, got, or he, uh, he takes care of me, he leads me. Then at the end he says, I will be with him forever. But in the middle he's praying because David's going through something probably pretty awful at this point. Uh, sometimes it used to be that people would look at the psalm and say David wrote it while he was a shepherd that's probably not when he was writing it most of the commentaries now think that when David was writing this and he's talking about walking to the valley of the shadow of death he's talking about an incident that happened in his life when his son Absalom uh, rebelled against David and David and his family had to flee for his life so he had to get out of that so David is writing this saying, I need for this shepherd to get me through all of this. So he has shifted to prayer. So what he's done is, is he's got his life anchored to these truths about God and of Jesus in the past and these truths about what's going to happen in the future. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But right now, there's something really hard that's going on. So what David is doing is he is locking himself in to the truth, and he's prayed and saying, right now I'm coming to you in prayer, and I'm locking myself in by prayer. I'll give you a picture of this. So I, I've been seeing these, these uh, advertisements uh, up and down the interstate and online, and, and somehow it's in my algorithm. They just, you know, they know how to advertise things to me. And uh, up in Ocala, there is something called the, the Canyon Zipline Tour. Have any of y'all seen this? Have any, have any of you thought, have you thought about doing this? No? no? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about doing this. And, uh, Basically what happens is you're on uh, like six-inch boards at the top of the tree line, and they zip line you through these canyons. So you have to walk across these boards and things, and they give you, you have a carabiner with it, you know, you're harnessed in, and you click your carabiner on up top so that if you start to fall, this has you, and it's holding on to you, right? So that's the only way I would ever do that. I know, yes, they have boards, they have these rails, they have other things, but the only way I'd ever do that is if I knew I was clipped in and I could walk along and not have to worry about falling, right? Because I would fall. Um, what is David doing right now? By prayer, he's locking in. He's saying, I know this. You lead me, you provide for me, you're always with me, and right now, I'm trusting you. I'm leaning upon you. You, I'm not afraid as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death because you're with me. Your, your rod and your staff, the staff to guide me and the rod to ward off evil. I trust you. I trust you in the midst of this. And what he's doing is he's anchoring himself because he knows that God is walking with us. And so what he's telling us to do is you're going to face hard things. God is good but the world is fallen. And David teaches us to seek the face of God, communion with God, even in the hard things. We were and are meant to walk with God in every sphere and episode of life. In the nitty-gritty, in the grind, in the valley, on the mountaintop, on the stormy seas, or in the middle of a field with the, shine, the sun shining on our faces. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to move past mere outward religion, past theoretical Christianity, to a real experience of God in your lives. You move beyond theology in a sense of simply being able to give answers or to understand a system, and you're able to uh, 
see God as a friend, as a father, as the lover of our souls, the way that the Bible talks about. They actually have fellowship with him. And in the real world, we need that kind of real grounding in the communion with God to say, I'm locked in here because the world can be very difficult. And this gives us stability and resiliency. It gives us hope. So Thomas Brooks, who is this uh, Puritan writer, he said this, get and keep communion with God. Your strength to stand and your strength to withstand all assaults is from your communion with God. Communion with God, and particularly in prayer, is that which will make you stand fast and triumph over all enemies, difficulties, dangers, and deaths. So, he's saying we're anchored in the truth. And the main truth that we're anchored in is the truth about Jesus. Uh, I find myself saying this a lot. Like, if I were to ask you, what's your, what's your lock-in thought? Like your, like your quick-strike prayer of like, I just need to tell myself this, click. In the world right now, the, the thing I find myself having to say a lot is, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He's my king. He's the world's king. He's the king we all need. He's the king we all want. And the world may fall apart, but Jesus is still king. And he's powerful, and he's going to bring the redemption that he's promised in scripture. I know it. Jesus is king. That's my, that's my carabiner lock-in idea. Um, but how do we know? Well, one of the things we can have to bear in mind is when we feel we're walking through the worst day of our lives, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we have to remember that Jesus didn't just walk through the shadow of death. He walked through the reality. He took our sins on himself and he took the reason for death on himself. So he didn't just pass through the shadow, he passed through the reality. And that means for us, when we pass through death, on this side it will hurt probably. I haven't, I haven't been there yet, but I'm going to imagine it's going to be uh, you know, on, on this end of things, maybe not pleasant. But once I go through, I will look back and say, it was but a shadow compared to the beautiful reality that is set before me. Can you say that? That we will get, we'll come out the other side um, and how does that give you strength here? I'd love to tell a story about me, um, but I don't have one that's as good as this. Um, this is from Denise Fisher. Some of you know Denise and, and uh, Ron who are part of our church plant and they're uh, up, I think, north at this point. But Denise was telling about her son, Herb, who was born with something called prune belly syndrome. And if you, have any of you ever heard of that? I've never heard of that. Prune belly syndrome, and she gave me permission. She said, you can use names and tell the story. So her son was born with prune belly syndrome, or it's called Eagle Barrett's disease. And these, he was born this way, and these are all the symptoms. No abdominal muscle, misshaped chest, misshaped heart, polycystic kidneys that weren't working, enlarged bladder with poor, poor muscle tone, undescended testicles, and weak intestinal tract because of poor muscle tone. He's had three kidney transplants, the first at the age of three, and was determined, they was, the doctors determined that he would also be sterile and unable to have children. His growth as a result of what he was, grew up with, was born with, his growth was stunted, so... Uh, Denise said they used human growth hormone with him and he was able to grow to five feet, four inches tall. 
So this is his life. And he's still dealing with a lot of this. And you can imagine a young person, you know, he didn't choose this. He didn't make an, it wasn't an accident that he caused. He was born like this. And you can imagine that he was really struggling with the idea of like, why would God do something like this? Why would God do this? But then Denise went on to talk about it. She said, uh, he found meaning in it and what and the fact that God had done it that gave him purpose so that he could accept that this is from the hand of this God who would die for me that God did this and he understood that the Lord is his shepherd and called him to it now this next part I'm just going to quote from her okay she said Herb definitely sees God's sovereignty in his life and is prepared for an early home going he doesn't dwell on that and continues to trust God in all things. He so loves the Lord Jesus for choosing him. Yes, and he has great peace and joy. And get this. He is currently in the process of being ordained in his denomination and has pastoral duties in his church. Isn't that amazing? That's God's grace and the recognition of God's grace in our lives. Psalm 23, 4, even on the worst day of my life, facing the greatest threat, violence, catastrophe, illness, whatever, I know that you will be with me. And for so many of us could tell stories about it was the worst day when we had the greatest sense of God's presence with us. And at that moment, we felt that I didn't lock in, but he took hold of me and just carried me. So Psalm 23 is for worship, but it's also a manifesto of faith. It's preparing us for life in a fallen and broken world. It's a reminder of who God is and who God is for us and to enable us to bear up under life's hardships, to be able to rejoice when there's hardship, to be able to spring back when we face trial, to be able to celebrate deeply when good things happen so that those good things don't rule over us and consume us but they become opportunities for worship and praise so that we're no longer unhappy because we have no one to thank, but we have someone to thank for all the good things. So we walk in communion with God, and that gives us both resilience and strength. So Psalm 23 is beloved because it reminds us that God is with us in everything that transpires in life. He goes with you. He walks with you. He provides for you. He meets you with beautiful things. And then when you face the hard things, he's there with the resources you need to stand up under it. He says, God is with you. I need a shepherd. I have a shepherd. You need a shepherd. And you have a shepherd in Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. Eyes to see before we get into a situation to know that you will, you've already been there. You're already in that situation. No matter how, how hard or difficult it might be, no matter how confusing it might be, that you are there and that we can trust you. Would you give us eyes to look at our past, even the hard things, but especially the good things, and to see them with eyes of gratitude and thanks that they are gifts from your hand not because of anything that we've done or not because of anything about us, but because of something about you. You are generous and kind. And I pray for those in this room who are going through very difficult things in their lives, whether it's their health, the health of somebody that they know and love, 
whether it's somebody who's dealing with substance issues, uh, whether it's work-related. We carry so many hard things. We pray, Lord, that you would meet them in a very special way, that they would have a sense that they are not walking in an all-alone world, but instead they're walking with a God who knows them by name and has a plan he's working out for their lives. Would you bless them and be with them? Would you be with all of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.